1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with R. Alan Covey, author of the book Inca Apocalypse, The Spanish Conquest and the Transformation of the Andean World. Alan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Yeah, I I trained as an archaeologist, and so um, I came out of a background in classical archaeology and and thought I was going to go into Roman archaeology, but, but wound my way through Mesoamerica and ends up in the Andes. And, and so I, I learned kind of the field methods of an archaeologist and, and have worked in the Andes for about 25 years. Uh, but as I've done the, the field archaeology studying the Incas, I found myself getting into the archives, because there are a lot of documents that talk about Inca times. And the more I worked in those archives, uh, the more I realized I needed to understand the colonial side of of the Inca world. And this is a project that's kind of brought those two sides together, the prehistoric archaeology and the colonial documents. And and, and in a lot of ways, it's taken me kind of 25 years to maybe feel confident enough uh, to take those two things on side by side.
1: What led you to uh, undertake such a project? What was it that that drew you to the the challenges of it and to uh, producing uh, a work like this? I think
0: it, it's a project I've been nervous about because it's such a big story. And it, it's one that people think they maybe know exactly what happens. They, they say, you know, there's this big battle in 1532 and Francisco Pizarro and his band of Spaniards comes in and captures the Inca and and... and kind of knocks their empire over and, and the world kind of turns around that pivotal event. Um, I, I think it, it, it's something, it, it was this uncomfortable spot between the archaeology, so, so archaeology didn't carry forward to 1532. When, when I started doing field work, we didn't necessarily register colonial pottery on the ground when we were doing archaeological surveys. And then, because the Incas didn't have writing we don't we don't have accounts uh indigenous ones from before the Spaniards got there so there's this bubble around the conquest where there's tons of disruption and tons of uncertainty, and then the pieces that go together are from anthropology and archaeology and history, and they don't always play nicely together so i was I was nervous about that. Um, but about seven years ago, I started working with uh, my colleague Sonia Alcanini on an Oxford handbook of the Incas, and, and, and we were taking this kind of big arc approach. We we're saying, you know, the Incas survived the conquest and, and we need to talk about the colonial period. And at that time, our, uh, our editor, uh, Stefan Branca at Oxford University Press said, hey, you know, it has, has there been a scholarly treatment of, of the conquest lately. And we got to talking and I thought that it might be a good time for me to do it. And so, so I threw myself into the project after that.
1: One of the things I find so, found so fascinating when I read your book was the, how you present uh, both the Inca and the Spaniards as being alike in so many ways. You don't begin with the conquest. You rather begin by talking about uh, their, their sense of selves, their identity, their, their apocalyptic thinking and, and you uh, draw from that so many fascinating uh, similarities and and comparisons. What what did that uh, process reveal to you and how does it inform our understanding of what takes place in the 16th century?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a central question of the book is uh, and and the word apocalypse kind of grew in significance as the project moved forward that at the time, I was sort of thinking of it as, you know, here's this rupture of, of the Andean world and and it had to feel like the end of the world for Andean people. And and there's a good literature on kind of how the Incas and other people in the Andes thought of these cycles of creation and destruction and how people place themselves, you know, human activities like agriculture, into those cycles or how, how the the, uh, the human life cycle replicated some of those things. And so I, I was thinking about that, but then as I was working, I said, you know, I I don't want to treat the Incas like an ancient empire that is superstitious, uh, and and then the Spaniards as a modern society that are is is rational and 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 somehow like we are today, and and so I started, you know, that that raised the question, you know, how how did. Uh, Iberian people, how did people that started calling themselves Spaniards around that time uh, think of the end of their world? And and so um, I didn't expect to be dipping back into uh, you know Christian mythology about uh, the relics of Santiago or Saint James, um, but but it 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 became this really valuable way for me to think about the deep histories of both regions and then the fact that both of them had this tradition of apocalyptic thinking both of them had a, a, they, they were experimenting with history at the time and both of them were also places where two empires were kind of forging a new outlook on how to how to govern people that weren't like them
1: it's something that I thought was especially interesting because you we, we think of it as you know these individuals. You, you you have the Spaniards, you have the Inca, they're they're there, but they're they're processing everything as you make clear through this the, the, their understanding of the world, their understanding of the universe. And I, I thought that was really uh, you know telling about how they were saying, you know our, our, how do these Spaniards fit into our apocalyptic tradition? How does what we're doing here in Peru, fit in with our sense of self and our sense of creation. And, and, and I, I thought that you know, it really gets a sense of how each side interpreted the other on, on an equal basis in, in the sense of, you know, that you're getting into those mentalities and that process of, of, of comprehension that both sides were undertaking 500 years ago.
0: Yeah, and I think there are two things that are going on there that, that we talk about kind of two sides but they turn out to be these two diverse worlds, which have all these different opinions going on. So if you if you look on the Iberian side, you can have um, re- recent Christian converts that that are expecting, yeah, they're predicting a Messiah, and you can have uh, yeah, uh, clergy that are that are seeing things one way, whereas the, the the political elite are seeing this kind of empire building as as a kind of uh, apocalypse or bringing about the final years of the world. And it's true for the Inca side too, that, that, um, uh, uh, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things about uh, the scholarship on the Incas in the last few decades is how much archaeology has shown us the diversity of that region and that there are places where, you know, the Incas weren't determining how local people thought or believed and where local people might have seen the Incas as apocalyptic to their worlds. And so so I think I think having all these different motivations and factions and individual interpretations and seeing them shift kind of in real time where where you could see, you know, when the when the Spaniards survive a big battle, uh, they say, well, that, that's a miracle. Therefore, God must be with us, which means what we're doing is part of this big plan. Um, if they lose a big battle, then they might say, "Well, God's punishing us because um, because we haven't been behaving correctly." And so there's a lot of um, kind of worldview making as, as these worlds are coming together. Um, and I think one of the big surprises for me was how much the Incas, uh, hum- the Inca nobility the, uh, the, of, of the capital region of Cusco, uh, become enthusiastic Christians and kind of uh, place themselves into that worldview. Uh, and the kind of empire building uh, where other Andean people were more resistant and, 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 and had kind of a different outlook on the processes that were going on.
1: I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate for us a little bit. What was the Inca Empire? What was it like? And what were some of the key structures that proved so important when we get to the story of the Spanish uh, uh, conquest and uh, the Incan response?
0: Yeah, so then that's a great story. Uh, sorry, a great question. The um, As I said, there's been a, a ton of archaeology that's been done in the last 50 or so years uh, all across the Andes. And I think what archaeology does when, when it studies ancient states, honestly, that's to say, away from the palaces, away from the temples and, and royal tombs, usually it finds out that the proclamations that the emperors are making are sometimes full of propaganda and wishful thinking. And so the Incas named their world Tawantinsuyu, which meant the four parts bound together, that that to them, it was this, uh, they were this uh, geographic and ecological totality that that they encompassed all the diversity of this part of Western South America. Um, But what archaeology shows us is uh, if you go down to the the coastal valleys on uh, uh, in, in the, the deserts of, of Peru and northern Chile, um, there, there isn't a lot of Inca there in a lot of valleys so that um, they have these local kingdoms that were kind of ruling themselves uh, in in traditions that are very different from the highland tradition that the Incas came from. If you go across the Andes into the Amazonian slope, you don't necessarily find uh, The Incas dominating people, you often find them building roads down to places where where they can draw people into trade, where they can have fortified sites where local people will want to come and engage with them. So now I think that we're we're finding, you know, the more we study the Incas, the more we're seeing their statecraft as being Sort of selectively applied. So the Incas built this huge network of roads across the Andes. They built administrative centers and and messenger posts and way stations, uh, and and those were places where they tried to draw subjects in to to encounters with with officials that um, often were related to to the royal family pretty closely. And so so what we're starting to see is that there there are a lot of gaps in the Andean world uh, uh, that that um, and, and those were gaps that the Spaniards, you know, in, in to to their good fortune, stumbled into. That they came into places uh, where the Incas had just cruelly conquered local people, and the local people were looking for allies. Or they came into places where there there wasn't a strong Inca representation, and 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 they they were able to take advantage of. Uh, you know many many, many people and a lot of leadership uh in what we would consider the Inca world that didn't really consider themselves directly benefiting uh from this imperial project
1: and you, so you have that you know clash between the Inca and their neighbors, but you also describe that at that particular point in. Uh, what for the West was 1531, 1532, there's also something of an Incan civil war taking place because the leadership is, uh, is, is up for grabs and that there's this contest taking place in which, which, you know, as you explained, is so important to the opportunity that the Spaniards are confronted with when they arrive.
0: Yeah, for sure. The, the ruler, uh, who's named Huayna uh, he, he died, um, in the mid-1520s, out on campaign at the northern frontier of the empire, which is up around the equator near Quito, Ecuador. Um, and that death kind of put put all these tensions that had been building in, in Inca uh, power dynamics as the empire had gotten bigger and bigger, that people were getting farther and farther from the capital. Uh, the The time that it took to travel the time that it took for information to travel all these things were becoming uh, more difficult to hold together and so his death kind of precipitated this division of male inca power uh between his son atahualpa who is a warlord who had all these uh frontier veterans from from ecuador and his other son Huascar who had um, the, the sort of ceremonial leadership in the capital far to the south in Cusco, uh, who had the support of a lot of the Inca noble factions that lived there. And so so you had these kind of two faces of male Inca power that went to war on each other instead of using their power to sustain and, and make grander uh, or extend the empire. And there's also a gender dimension to it. Also, uh, that, that um, uh, I, w- I would say that that war uh, bypassed a lot of the female uh, power networks that had helped to to sustain this empire. The women were major leaders in uh, maintaining good connections to the royal dead and to supernatural figures and and carrying out sacrificial activities. So so that's something that the, the Spaniards came onto a a landscape that was already apocalyptic in some ways uh, to, to to the Incas uh, that they had they had suffered this epidemic probably European diseases. Uh, that were moving in ahead of the Spaniards and they had seen this bloody civil war and it was totally uncertain to a lot of people whether the empire was going to reconstitute itself, whether its capital was going to remain in Cusco, who was going to be in charge, and then what was going to happen to everyone else. And so the Spaniards wandered into this incredibly uncertain moment uh, uh, and and they were able to take advantage of, of a lot of folks uh, kind of retooling their strategies and trying to come up with, you know, here's the new world that we want to build here.
1: Now, to be clear, the Spaniards, when they arrived, they themselves are not necessarily united behind a single purpose. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit what was going on with the Spanish Empire in the early 16th century, and in particular, the dynamic that you described between uh, the uh conquistador impulse and, and the goal of colonization. Because as you explained, there is a lot of tension there within the Spanish in terms of the desire of uh of, of Carlos V, Charles V to uh you know to to push for colonization and and the desire of, of Pizarro and others to embrace the older uh conquistador dynamic.
0: Yeah there's um I I think there, there's I think Spain kind of stumbles into an empire without necessarily having a model for how to govern people that don't have the kind of uh, city governments that you would have found in the Iberian Peninsula at that time. And so it, it, and it kind of it starts on the coast of Africa with the Canary Islands and then it moves into the Caribbean. But I, I would say an analogy I, I, would, I would use maybe is you could, uh, it would be kind of the hunter versus the shepherd. That the, the conquistador is out there, uh, trying to get the immediate score and take whatever happens and shed blood if necessary, and and grab that stuff from from uh, far from home, and and take that back with them. Uh, the shepherd is there, uh, you know, literally trying to fleece the flock, uh, maybe uh, uh, keeping them alive, uh, raising up generations. So the colonist for for the the, the Spanish side. Uh, is is motivated by different kinds of profits. So from plantations. So we know the, the familiar ones from the Caribbean, like sugar cane, um uh and and uh a lot of other kinds of crops that didn't grow in Spain at that time. Uh and, and so this is something where uh Charles V uh, was he was eager to have conquistadors go out and explore areas and give them to him. That was the the medieval model of finding something and and presenting it to a sovereign and then having that sovereign figure out how to govern it. Um, But then he wanted his colonists to come in to set up towns and to to set up this kind of a revenue system where he would be getting a cut from the mines and he would be getting a cut from the merchandise that's moving back and forth. And the problem there is that uh, a lot of times the the waves of Spaniards that, that went west into the Americas Um, got to a place like Hispaniola, this big island in the Caribbean, and they found that the best opportunities had already been eaten up, that that the best lands were taken, native populations had often already either been enslaved or put into these kind of um, uh, labor arrangements for the people that had come before. And so you had these new groups of Spaniards that head out into more, you know, farther into the unknown, uh, sometimes as slave raiders, uh, sometimes as explorers, but trying to get quick profits, uh, that uh, rather than kind of the slow exploitative profit of the colonists, and, and I think that was some, one of the biggest surprises for me uh, with this book is that Charles V made it really clear that he was sending Francisco Pizarro to be a colonist. He wanted him founding towns. He wanted uh, he wanted him to be paid out of revenues that were going to be delivered to royal officials and make their way back to Spain and uh, Pizarro really flipped the script and went back to being a conquistador, which is what he had been uh, in northern South America, in Panama, in, in Nicaragua before that.
1: That's one of the things I thought was uh, was really interesting was how it was not just Pizarro, but so many of the other ones. I was thinking about when uh, later in the book you describe how word is getting back to uh, Panama about uh, the discovery of, uh, of, of the Inca and, and and the first words of all the great treasure that you're doing. And you had all these people that were giving up their encomiendas and, <laughs> and sailing down because they wanted to cash in quick. It was like, they, they, they weren't down for this long-term profit stuff. They wanted to get rich quick and and, 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 and you know make a fortune that way. And as you explained, that, that wasn't really a sustainable model uh, even early on in, in, in the uh, Incan uh, uh, conquest.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's like a flash mob with the wrong kind of social media, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like the word get, the word gets out that there's this thing happening, but by the time most people show up, it's already over, and they're really unwelcome. So, so when when Pizarro, you know, he he captures you know Atahualpa, this Inca prince, and holds he's going to hold him for ransom, and he sends some of the treasure to his friends back in Nicaragua because he's he's thinking, you know, I need more guys to help me hold this area and and represent my interests. But by the time they get there, uh, you know, the treasure has been divided up and there are already you know, too many guys that, that want to cut of, of what comes next. And, and, and that's a, a really big dynamic in the early years is uh, the wave after wave of Spaniards that are coming in thinking that uh, there's going to be more disruption and they're, they're going to get
1: rich quick. Another thing that for me was really uh, revelatory was discovering how long this process, this uh, expedition had been gestating. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about who Pizarro was and, and the, the process by which he it launches this expedition in the early 1530s, ostensibly to colonize uh, this region and to establish that Spanish presence uh, in that part of South America.
0: Sure. I think that's one of maybe the biggest misconceptions of the way we've traditionally told the story. And and we tend to kind of tell the age of exploration story as kind of a date, a place and an explorer. And so we say, you know, 1532, Fran- Francisco Pizarro, uh, Inca Empire. And the reality is that the story goes back uh, you know, about eight years uh, prior to that time. The, the, um, and then it goes back to Panama uh, where you know, as soon as they get over to the Pacific side, there's Spaniards that are building boats and trying to learn the currents and the winds and trying to explore up and down the coast. And they know that the local people of Panama and Colombia have gold. Uh, and, and so, so there, there's an explorer that, that kind of makes his way a little farther south than the others from, from Panama. It would be the coast of northern Colombia. And he hears about a, a ruler uh, named Biru or, or something like that. And he comes back and he says, you know, there, there's, there's this rich guy. Um, I mean, in fact, that's, that's a story that Native people told Europeans all across the Americas once they knew that they were coming for gold. Is there's hey, we don't have any gold, but if you march over to where our enemies live, they, they have lots of gold, and we'd be happy to carry your stuff to the edge of our territory and point the way out to you. And so, so he came back with this story. And, and uh, the, uh, this, this man named Pascual de Andagoya, and he couldn't make the trip himself. But Pizarro and his partner, Diego del Almagro and a third partner got permission from the governor to sail south, and it was a disaster. Uh, they, they, they didn't know the currents, they didn't know the winds, they weren't provisioned well enough because there weren't enough boats or enough men or enough supplies to, to really send any sort of fighting uh, force. Uh, they, they, they were defeated pretty much in every village they landed. They had to kind of sneak in and steal food. Uh, and and. And they lost about three quarters of their men. And, and it got so bad that when they would send back for supplies, there was one ship where the men that were kind of stranded on the beach waiting for food, uh, uh, they, they sneaked notes back to the governor in Panama. They're like, please get us out of our contract with this guy. Uh, he, he's, he's horrible. Uh, and, but in this process, um, uh, Pizarro and his, his navigator made this kind of desperate uh, uh, venture into the south. And they came out of this kind of tropical landscape and into this world of uh you know pyramid-filled cities uh with coastal roads and and special fishing and farming economies and merchants and and lots of precious metal and 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 so they, they knew that this was something different and and so um uh and and so pizarro went back and he knew that he needed to get royal permission to do something really big there. And so he actually sailed back to Spain and went to court and he said, Hey, I found this civilized world and the local people are friendly. And, and, and Charles V actually wrote to his counselors. He said, this is such a civilized place that we only need to send 250 Spaniards that that they're going to set up colonies. Uh, we don't even need to do any fighting. And so Pizarro made a contract in 1529 that said, you're going to sail with, uh, X number of Spaniards from Spain, you're going to go by this route, you're going to be there by such and such a time, and when you get there, you're going to found four towns along this stretch of the coast, uh, and you're going to set these people up as municipal officers, you're going to appoint these people as priests, you're going to do these things with the revenues that are coming uh, out of mining, and out of agriculture." So it was it was this kind of fully formed colony, uh, and and it all fell apart. He sailed illegally from Spain without the, the number of people he was supposed to. He didn't take the route he was supposed to. He didn't leave Panama for Peru until after his contract had had expired, and and then it, it kind of cascaded forward from there. So the empire that Charles V thought that he was building, uh, it took him a few years of sending letters after Pizarro saying, "Hey, what's going on in Peru?" Uh, and, hey, you know, you need to give us an accounting of all the places that you founded, because you should have founded something by now. There should be some sort of colony there, uh, and and in many ways, it's it's only this kind of big score of precious metal that that kind of um, makes Pizarro look like he's done what he's supposed to. And in, in fact, kind of a, a kind of side fact of that is the first uh, stories of the expedition that come back to Spain. They use titles that are that that are very clear that they're trying to convince people that Pizarro did what he was supposed to. So, it's, you know, saying the conquest of Peru that Pizarro did for the crown of Spain, that the, the and and so uh, there, there's a lot of kind of really needing after the fact to say, hey, you know, we felt that it would be better to apologize and to ask permission, and now we have all this gold <laughs> and silver to give you.
1: <laughs> so, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain the the you know, the march that Pizarro undertakes to, because as, as you described the geography, it's not an easy thing to get to uh, Kuzoko or uh, to get to uh, the Inca uh, empire. And, and that it's, it's a very debilitating experience. And then of course, when he arrives, he arrives in, in the middle of this, you know, ongoing Incan drama. And how does, how does uh, Atahualpa, you know, view them? And and how does he basically in effect make himself vulnerable to the Spanish to, to the point where they're able to capture him.
0: Yeah. So, so the, uh, the, the Spaniards, it takes them a long time to make their way down um, in part because they've got horses with them. And that's one of the big decisive things that that makes them more successful than they had been farther North on the coast. So once they could ride on Inca roads and take food out of Inca storehouses and, and sleep in the buildings and uh, along the, the Inca highway, uh, their horsemen could move faster than Inca message runners could run, that they, they kind of had the initiative. They could send a, uh, very powerful uh, small groups of cavalry um, and and to to scout out areas and to keep them informed. Um, so, so they land with their horses because the horses don't do well on the ocean in these small ships, and they make their way by foot. Uh, native people carry them in rafts. They eventually make it to the Inca roads. And along the coast, they, they start learning that there's been this civil war. And and in fact, the, the city of Tumbes that they were supposed to uh, colonize first, they find kind of as a smoking ruin. Uh, and then the local people have fled, uh, that, that they, they don't want to have anything to do with the Spaniards, uh, who have just been spending some time with their mortal enemies. Um, and so the Spaniards come in and um, and they're, they're kind of trying to figure out, you know, what do we do on the coast? Um, and and then they 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 learn more and more uh, from the coastal lords about this civil war, and and they hear that there's this um, the, the, these two brothers have been fighting. One of them has uh, just defeated the other. And Pizarro says to his men, you know, we should we should head inland because if we can get that guy, uh, then then the rest of this is going to kind of fall in place. And and so the people on the coast actually, some of them go to fight with the Spaniards. Some of them come as porters. Uh, some of them serve as spies. Uh, they give them supplies along the way. So there's a ton of native support because Atahualpa had just gone through that area um, to punish people that hadn't supported him in the civil war. And so uh, you have this kind of shell-shocked, burned out region and and Pizarro comes in and he's doing his share of burning people and 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 doing kind of shock and awe. Uh, but but is that I think the local people figure we can if we can send them against atahualpa you know one of these sides is gonna uh end up dead and and so for atahualpa's part it really depends on the version of the story that 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 you read but he seems to have a lot of anxiety uh he's this warlord but he's not really the inca he's been trying to do some ceremonial things that will make him seem inca but a lot of them backfire like he goes and consults his oracle uh, and I think he's hoping the oracle is going to say, "Yeah, you're going to be a great Inca." And instead, the oracle says, "You shouldn't kill so many people." And so he takes an axe and chops up the stone that that supposedly is where what the oracle speaks from. And he kills the man who, who speaks for it. And so he has this kind of um, you know violent inferiority complex in some ways. Um, and so he's he he's won a war, but it's not clear that he's going to what what kind of empire he he can kind of get people to recognize him as the ruler of. And so when the Spaniards come in, uh that they, they they seem like both an opportunity and a potential threat. So there aren't a lot of them. And and some of Atahualpa's uh counselors are, you know, they say there aren't that many. You can just have them sleep in one giant building at, at one of your way stations and set the thing on fire and kill them all. Uh but then there's also an opportunity that that they're they're pretty bloodthirsty, good fighters. Uh, and he's got a lot of enemies, and so so there's a lot of messages that go back and forth between Pizarro and and Atahualpa. And one of the curious things to me, doing the reading of this, was through the different lenses of of what each side thought was going on. So uh, Atahualpa sent things uh, to sent food and drink to Francisco Pizarro, uh, and sent gold cups and 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 things like that for Pizarro. It's gifts and maybe tributes. Uh, to the Incas, if you drink out of the Inca's cup and drink the Inca's beer, you're saying that you are their subject. And so, so there are things that are going on. Um, and and then for the, the Spanish side, the Spaniards are saying, "Hey, we want Atahualpa to know uh, we consider that it was okay for him to fight against his brother, even though he was Inca. Um, we we love him, and we want to be his. his we want to fight for him. Uh, and and what what they're trying to kind of express as." Um, uh, as subjects of Charles V, is, is saying, as as uh, his subjects, if you become a vassal of, of Spain, we'll fight for you. What a lot of that sounded like to Atahualpa was, we're coming to surrender to you. Uh, we're going to drink your beer. We're going to go out and fight your fights. And so when the two sides came together in this Inca city of Cajamarca in the northern highlands of Peru, this is um, November 17th, 1532, uh, Atahualpa was coming in, I think, he thought that he was going to receive the, if not surrender, just the the loyalty of of kind of these these new strange fighters. Uh, The Spaniards, for their part, had an ambush set up. They were preparing to grab him uh, from the day, at least that that day as as they saw the Incas coming. But uh, they had their armor on, their their horses were were saddled up inside the Inca buildings. Uh, And so so the encounter, uh, a lot of people call it the Battle of Cajamarca, but the Incas they didn't they they'd never really fought in the the plaza of one of those cities before that that they they i think firmly believed they were coming to show the magnificent spectacle of of the emperor uh that wanted to be uh and 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 the Spaniards grabbed him as soon as he came into the plaza
1: so they now have uh, the Inca, and, and and to be clear, we use that word for the empire, but it also refers to uh, the position of, of the ruler of the people. But the, the So they have the Inca, and uh, they then begin to demand uh, – you know, they begin to extort payments. How – what are they getting, and, and, and how is this fitting in with what's going on within uh, the Incan empire itself?
0: Yeah, so I think there are two – I mean, two sides – to uh, a lot of quick thinking in this moment. On the Spanish side, there's already a precedent for grabbing rulers on the battlefield and holding them for ransom. That was a medieval idea, but but even more recently, Cortez had done that with Montezuma in Mexico. Um, uh, Spanish troops had grabbed the King of France on the battlefield. Uh, they had grabbed the Pope. Uh, just you know, within recent years, uh, to to get better treaties, to get payments of of ransom. Uh, so for their part, uh, they were open to this idea of payment. Uh, for Atahualpa's part, knowing that they wanted gold and silver, um, he wanted to live uh, long <laughs> enough to try and uh, recover from this. And and so I think to say that he was Inca, the Spaniards knew that he wasn't the crowned Inca and Atahualpa hadn't, he hadn't been crowned in the capital as Inca, um, but it was convenient once the Spaniards had him, to say, we have the most powerful Inca lord. And so Atahualpa said, hey, I'll give you a bunch of gold and silver if you let me go. And and for him, he knew that it would take a long time to send the, the news out to areas where the treasure would come from, to kind of strip it off of buildings and pull it out of palaces and tombs and carry it up to the these northern Peruvian highlands. And he also knew that once the Spaniards had it, They would be so encumbered by just the sheer mass of gold and silver that they couldn't move around the landscape the the way that they might like. And so so he kind of locked them into place with this uh, kind of promise of a conquistador's treasure. And then he did something really smart, which was he told them to go and plunder all these people that were his enemies. Uh, so, So he sent them basically to do damage to the factions that hadn't supported them. Uh, and at the same time, he got them to allow him to kind of reconstitute his court in the palace at, at Cajamarca to to bring in powerful women, to bring in the kind of gold and silver serving vessels, to receive messengers and, and to to have his, his advisors there. And so he got to seem to the Inca uh, while trying to figure out what the next step uh, in his story would be. But the Spaniards also were considering uh, how they could get by without him and what they would do. And so so uh, in the months that followed, uh, there's a lot of um, strategy making uh, that, that um, results basically with Atahualpa executed in Cajamarca and the Spaniards riding with another Inca uh, toward the, the Inca capital of Cusco with the intention of, of, uh, settling a Spanish town there.
1: What you describe in the pages that follow, I, I thought was really interesting because it, it's so unlike the, you know, what we might have perceived as the narrative of Pizarro having conquered it. Rather, you have these Spaniards who still number barely in the hundreds who are basically there on Incan sufferance. There's this understanding you make it clear that, that, you know, that, uh, Yes, they have uh, they they have firearms, but their their powder and their shot is limited, and there is an awareness that once that happens, that once they, that that's gone, there, there's no opportunity to replenish it. That their horses, formidable as they are, are finite in number, and as you described, the the Inca are, are perfectly capable of ambushing the, these uh, cavalry and 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 uh, and you know dis, dislodging it for they are. So it really is a, a very tenuous situation where. It was it was a fascinating conception of it of of the Spanish is simply one set of players in this very uh, unsettled uh, in, in environment in 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 the area that which the Spanish are only gradually asserting a a, a presence and and a control.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's uh, an interesting part of this story is that. A lot. one of the reasons a lot of these Spaniards survive, a lot of them don't, uh, but one reason a lot of them survive is that Inca women uh, find it, maybe, maybe it's a duty, maybe it's an opportunity for their families uh, to, to make alliances with leading Spaniards. So you have Inca princesses that, uh, that, that by the time the Spaniards are marching to Cusco with their Inca allies, uh, they're Inca princesses that are pregnant with uh, some of the, the first Mestizo children that are going to be born in the Andes. And those women convert to Christianity really early. Uh, they uh, supply the Spaniards with information. They help to convince their male relatives to fight for the Spaniards. And, and they get written out of the story. That I think that's one of the, the things I've tried to do with this book is to restore how important these women were for uh, uh, keeping you know, a, a completely united uh, Inca Andean world from coming down on the Spaniards all at once, which would have easily destroyed them. Uh, and uh, and so so that's something that. Um, uh, but but it is it's touch and go. Um, when the Spaniards have an Inca Inca alliance, they turn on each other. Uh, and and the only thing that brings the Spaniards back into alliance is when the Incas are threatening them. Uh, and it kind of goes back and forth. That uh, that there's a lot of fighting. Um, and I mean, hundreds and hundreds of Spaniards are dying uh, in in uh, in wars with indigenous people, and then wars with other Spaniards all the way up into the 1550s, for 20 years after Pizarro gets there.
1: That was one of the points that that really stuck with me was reading about that last battle that takes place in the early 1550s with Gonzalo Pizarro, uh, uh, Francisco's uh, uh, survived, last surviving brother, and how you have him and this group of of Conquistadors. He really has, has has gone off the reservation. He has he has assumed a lot of the trappings of, of an indigenous of, of of sort of a, a transplanted king. And, and you describe how this this battle in which he's defeated. You have literally Incans fighting on behalf of the Spanish king, defeating a group of Spanish conquistadors who are in effect fighting for themselves. It's almost like a, re- a reversal of positions from say twenty years previously. I think that that's
0: it's it's a really important theme of the Incas and a lot of Andean nobles saying, hey, Spain is going to preserve our, our noble status. I think that's a really important point is that there's so many uh, Andean nobles that could carry the title of Don or Doña once they converted to Christianity, which meant that they socially outranked most of the Spaniards that were in the Andes because those people were non-noble. And and so so seeing that they're Privileges, their lands, their um, their access to labor was better protected uh, by supporting the crown. You see the Incas as early allies, and and something kind of if you were to trace this forward to uh, Peruvian independence from Spain in the eighteen hundreds, when the last Spanish viceroy is defeated in Lima, he flees to Cusco, which is this ancient Inca city. And the descendants of the inca emperors welcome him and they want to have a ceremony where they dress up as their ancestors because they say we're still good spanish uh uh subjects i think that's something that uh another really important theme for this book too is how much uh the the native side wasn't just native against european it's it's different indigenous self-interests playing out And something that I haven't mentioned yet in this interview is also how important um, Afro-Peruvian and African descent populations are in this story. That that, uh, by by the time you get to these later rebellions, uh, like say in in the early 1550s, you have hundreds of people of color that are fighting in the civil wars because they're fighting for freedom. Uh, And and a lot they're fighting for their king or they're fighting uh, because they've been promised uh, liberty from enslavement. Um, And and they're a big part of the story that that is left out when you treat it as sort of um, Europeans against Native Americans. Mm
1: -hmm. The other thing I I was really struck by about this, though, was was how, uh, you know, all these interests are at play and how every group is making this calculation to defend their interests. I was thinking about it in terms of going back to what you were talking about with the uh, the Incan uh, being good subjects of of the Spanish. Uh, emperor, is that you have a situation where, as you explained, the, the Spaniards have, have effectively overpromised so much stuff. And at some point, they're practically in, going and in, engaging in, ex, in these risky explorations, these wars, just to kill off all these Spanish who are expecting all these encomiendas and territories that, in effect, they can't pro- give because the Incans are getting so good at protecting their, their domains. It, it, that that notion of, of, of interest being... of, of all the interest at play it you know, really comes out in your narrative about how th- th- it's not a sense of ignorance versus the wisdom of the Spaniards or the cunning of the Spaniards, but there's a lot of cunning and 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 gamesmanship taking place on all sides of this
0: yeah and i think that that's something when you when you pull this uh story apart from a single battle where you, where you have this kind of mythical idea that pizarro didn't know where he was he didn't know what he was facing he was just brave and fought and lucky and the incas had no idea what they were facing when you stretch it out to to fit kind of two or three decades the incas learned very quickly and they adapted and the spaniards learned quickly and their motivations changed and and even in that theme of apocalypse um that changed so that by the 1550s you have uh the the poor foot soldiers thinking that that they're building some sort of utopian world uh, where they should have uh, access to to free land and labor, uh, and and then you have um, at the same time you have Incas that are uh, fashioning sacred objects that can that they can carry in the Catholic Corpus Christi procession because uh, that that's where they they thrown their lot in, um, and, and so so I think that 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 was maybe one of the really important things to take away uh, for me with this project is that you know the 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 incas learned a lot and put that learning into new strategies because because this this went on long enough for them to consider what their next move was going to be
1: and yet, as you explain, once a lot of that, the fighting is out of the way by the time you get to the mid 1550s, in some respects, that's when the process of assimilation truly begins. And as you explain later in the book, a lot of those, uh, those strategies that that the Inca adopt don't necessarily work out very well for them, especially as uh, during the uh, the Viceroyalty of, of, of Toledo, where there seems to be sort of a, a reassessment that it, that doesn't necessarily benefit the Incans as much as they might have hoped.
0: Yeah, and I would say, I mean, th- th- you can kind of see that it- it's after the uh, royalist armies defeat the last rebellious Spaniards in the 1550s that you see this kind of move to consolidate uh, Spanish rule. And and so you have viceroys that are saying, hey, you know, we need to make sure that uh, native elites don't have as much wiggle room, that, that they're not getting rich, that they're not controlling uh, local labor, that they're not hiding tributary workers from us, all these things that that they're accusing uh, the indigenous elite of doing. Uh, but they're also really suspicious of um, the, the the kind of um, labor grant holders among the Spaniards, and they're suspicious of the priests. And so, um, you know, by, you know, at the end of the 1560s, uh, Philip II of Spain uh, sends this uh, this viceroy Francisco de Toledo, and and basically he's saying, you know, you gotta you gotta ensure that the revenues from the mines are are sending me the silver I need, and you've got to get my officials looking at, at my interests so that all of my subjects are are serving me. Um, it's not just about kind of crushing the Incas, but but some of that comes uh, with because of the the rhetoric of an empire that's built for conversion to Christianity. Um, uh, that's the time when they're sending the Inquisition and the Jesuits are coming in. They're saying, well, we, we have to be sure that people are good Christians. We have to be sure that it's not just the elite, but also the ordinary people in the countryside. And um, that viceroy comes in and eventually he just adopts this very anti-Inca uh, program where he says, you know, the Incas are illegitimate. Um, I want to bring an end to them. He actually arrests a bunch of, of the Incas in, in Cusco. Uh, after constructing this really elaborate legal case against their sovereignty. So he's saying, you know, you can treat them as Indians. They they don't have to be treated as as, uh, a people that are set apart or as descendants of of actual lords. Uh, They're just your tributaries. And so so he did a lot to destructure. And, I mean, he actually intended to um, resettle the nobility of Cusco, uh, some of them in Mexico, uh which which didn't actually come about but but for sure over time the incas saw that um the sovereignty that one inca held uh, uh a lot more Inca men could could have the status of nobility but it didn't carry as much kind of power and wealth and uh, uh over time that, that the privileges uh became much more limited to the city of cusco um limited to pretty modest estates and so so it, it is something that the bargain that they made, you know, in, in the 1540s and 1550s, um, a lifetime later, their sons and grandsons, yeah, just didn't necessarily have uh, the same kind of status, uh, even though they still considered themselves the descendants of emperors.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, th- this I think one of the big takeaways for this book for me was um, how much uh, European genres and writing changed in the time that people were writing about the Incas in, in this first century uh, after Pizarro arrived. And, and you know, where, where you can have the Incas you know, written about in a play or you can have them in in a heroic poem, or you could have them uh, in a world history or in a a, a book that's about uh, the martyrdom of saintly people. And so it, it was something that um, uh, kind of blended together with some, some of the dissatisfaction I've seen in modern scholarship about how the Incas don't fit into the models that we have for states and empires. And so I'm working on a book that's called The Inca Exception, and it kind of takes this... Um, this place of saying um, the Incas are kind of put over into anthropology uh, and a lot of the ideas that we have about how states work, what government looks like uh, that it's bureaucratic and territorial and 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 doesn't involve kind of uh, uh, kinship a lot of that stuff is coming from the european side and and so this book is kind of tracing the way that europeans as they developed their own sense of being modern and being enlightened and being civilized, the way they told and retold the story of who the Incas were, that, that the Incas were a kind of tragic pagan civilization, they were victims of the Spaniards, they were enlightened despots, eventually, you know, when we see the kind of scientific racism that develops in the 19th century, they're treated as the best of an inferior race. And eventually, they're they're part of anthropology, which is part of the reason that that they don't fit into some of these modern theories in political science or sociology. And so so it's, it's a kind of big arc that uses uh, these imagined uh, or reimaginings of the Incas uh, over time that that's kind of intended to help us understand how we got to where we've been talking about them today, like uh, and maybe some productive ways for rethinking how we talk about ancient states and empires.
1: Well, it sounds like a fascinating project and a pretty big one too. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if it comes off. Well, well, Alan, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Yeah,
0: thank you for the invitation. This was this was uh, uh, a lot of fun.